You're listening to Naked Truth, a therapy podcast. Please remember to check episode notes for trigger warnings before listening. All right, that's it for me. Now here's Alicia. Hi, this is Alicia Matusiak. I'm a nurse practitioner and a social worker. And I came across recently this book called The Five-Step Exit when I talked to one of my friends about narcissistic relationships. And she mentioned that Amber Alt uh, wrote this guide on how to uh, leave a narcissist. And so I decided to purchase the book. I read it and I think it's uh, an amazing book. And then I thought about contacting Amber and she agreed to give us an interview uh, and some insights uh, about the book and about leaving a narcissist. Sophie, I'm excited that we're going to talk to Amber because I think you mentioned some uh, relationships that you had in your past that were abusive, uh, emotionally abusive. And uh, I'm sure that the person you were dating had narcissistic qualities. So I'm excited about about just talking about it. It's such a such an interesting topic. Yeah, I'm really interested to hear what she has to say and hear kind of how she came to write the book and all of those things. I'm really interested to see what you ask her and how that goes. And, you know, on a personal note, since I'm talking about my personal notes like <laughs> all the time, on a personal note, uh, the, le- the most recent relationship I had was uh, with a boy that was a narcissist and still is. He's a wonderful person. It's just he's a narcissist, and that's that's all that that there's to it, you right. know. And and so I'm excited, really, to um, to get some more insight into the relationships, narcissistic relationships, and and talk some more about it. Right. Yeah. I, I like that she talks about what happens after and the healing as well, instead of, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, you just have to leave. You know, a lot of friends don't have the tools. Um, mm-hmm. that they would need to guide you through it. But once it's done, it's a whole other ball game that you have to work through. So, <laughs> yeah. Happy to meet you. Very happy to meet you. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and uh, how you wrote this wonderful book book called The Five-Step Exit uh, to Leave a Narcissist? Sure. Yeah. So my name is Amber Alt. I am both a sociologist and a clinical mental health worker. So my first career was teaching, doing research and writing in sociology. And, uh, but my undergrad degree was in psychology and it was always kind of my first love. And so after, at a certain point in my sociological career, I kept hearing the calling to get some clinical training. And so went back to school and am trained as a clinical social worker. And I've been working in mental health now for 10 years, Um, both a private practice where I've worked with folks in that, you know, longer, slower work of psychotherapy. And I've done a lot of work in crisis intervention. And I've found that those two cross paths when I'm working with people who have um, had relationships with somebody who has a narcissistic or antisocial or sometimes borderline personality disorder because lots of folks have been traumatized and have crisis situations. So, um, so that's a little bit about my, a little bit about my background and how I came to this work. From what I hear you say, it sounds like you wrote this awesome book 
based on your work with clients who may have been going through relationships uh, with narcissistic uh, individuals. Um, is there any component here? Because of course, I'm very, very curious about this. Is there any component here that, that involves your own personal experience of being involved with someone that was a narcissist or being around uh, people that were narcissists at all? I'm just, of course, very curious. That's all. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I, I don't, I don't share, I don't talk about this a lot with my clients, but I will certainly talk okay. about it with you. Mm -hmm. uh, so anybody who's listening then will have access to that. Um, I have had exposure to mm -hmm. really, where um, there has been a personality disordered person. Um, mm -hmm. I have seen that in my family. I've had mm -hmm. some personal direct experience with it. Um, and that's partly why I am so passionate about doing this work. Um, mm -hmm. my, uh, I realized at a certain point when I wrote the five-step exit that um, my audience really was my mother. Okay. And uh, in in her marriage, um, she uh, suffered a lot. And um, we had an ongoing conversation through the course of my life about whether, whether she would leave my father, who was her mm -hmm. husband. And so um, I realized that there's, there's, there's part of the work that I do that's really a really dedicated to um, my mother. And that really comes from understanding, watching, watching what she went through with my father for, de for decades. So, um, and it also informs my um, understanding of if people stay in relationships with a toxic partner, how can they do that and still maintain their mental health. So if they make that decision, if they can't make the decision to leave, what kind of protective elements can we put in place to help them have some quality of life? It's not the same quality of life as when you are, you know, partnered with somebody who's responsive to you or who can take you into account. There are ways of doing that. And, and my mother did her best to have a good life, even though she was married to somebody who was very toxic. So, so yes, um, in my broader family, um, I lost a second cousin to uh, through murder. Um, she was married. Sorry to hear that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. She was married to someone who had a deep mental health history, history of previous abuse in a previous marriage. Um, and as is typical in some of these situations, when she left, that was that was when she was murdered. Um, so yes, I have seen this up up close and personal, and I think. When people come to me, they will often say, I've, I've been to three therapists before you. I've been to five therapists before you, and they don't get it. And when I get to you, you get it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think for many survivors or people who are in this situation or people who are trying to exit this situation, often they have stories to tell about their experience that sound crazy. Mm -hmm. People who haven't observed it or who, who operate in a world where most people are rational and people are thoughtful and okay, people have disagreements, but they, they, they have not been exposed to or educated about how 
bizarre. Mm -hmm. Some of the situations people experience when they're being gaslit mm -hmm. or when they're being manipulated. And mm -hmm. I don't think you have to have lived through it in order to be a good therapist for somebody who is in that situation. Sure. But you do have to take people uh, at, at, you know, at, at certainly at the beginning, you have to meet people where they are and mm -hmm. um, give them the space to expose these stories so that they, that they feel heard and uh, validated mm -hmm. around the, around the experience. So long answer to your question. Yes, I have seen it up close and personal in a bunch of different ways. Um, and that's in part why I'm so passionate about it because I, th I think um, when I talk about these relationships, I learned early on to talk about toxic relationships because um, when we say abusive relationships, people automatically go to um, physical violence. Oh, well, there's no physical violence. And for many people, that's kind of the standard. Well, if you ever hit me, I would leave. Or if she ever, if she ever hit the kid, I would leave. So many people who have a narcissistic or antisocial or borderline pattern stop short of that. Mm-hmm. It's mm -hmm. the emotional piece, it's the manipulation, it's the mm -hmm. invalidation, it's the um, gaslighting, it's, mm -hmm. it's the crazy making behaviors that really destroy people's quality of life. And so talking about, when I talk about toxic relationships, people can identify with that more than mm -hmm. they identify with like, oh, I'm in an abusive relationship. So. And, you know, I think that uh, so many people have such a hard time understanding why someone would not leave a narcissistic uh, partner or a partner who is, like you said, toxic. And, and, and I'm glad that you brought that up because a lot of people cannot understand the level of how poisonous this emotional abuse is and how even the person that's in the relationship cannot frequently see what's happening until they leave maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. The things that become the tipping point and, and people do ask this question, why, why would somebody put up with it? Why doesn't somebody leave? Um, initially anyway, I really like to flip that question just to make clear to anybody who's listening that we can also ask, why does somebody who appears to dislike their partner so much or hate their partner or have such disdain for their partner, or is violent to their partner, why are they staying? Mm -hmm. We always ask why, why, why is the victim not leaving, right? Mm -hmm. But when we ask this question, if, if, um, if one party has such disdain for the other party, why don't they just leave, right? True. Then, it, then it gets to what's really going on, which is the abusive partner is getting something out of the abuse they're getting a sense of power, mm -hmm. a sense of control, a sense of superiority. And the truth is they need the victim. They need the person who they, that they're kind of narcissistically torturing. They need them more than uh, the person who is being tortured need, mm -hmm. needs the narcissist. Um, now, the narcissist will convince their partner that that's not true. Mm-hmm. Oh, you'd be nothing without me. Nobody else would ever love you. You don't have any money. Um, I saw in my parents' relationship, my father would um, 
say to my mother, you know, I have all the money, you don't have any money. Mm-hmm. And at a legal sense, that's absolutely, it's just absolutely not true. So um, if you're living in a marital property state, whatever has been acquired over the course of the marriage belongs to both people. Mm-hmm. And if they divorce, it's joint property. So it's um, there can be certainly this kind of gaslighting where the narcissistic person is going to try to convince their partner that they wouldn't mm-hmm. survive without them. But they're doing that because they need this sense of superiority, power, and control. So why doesn't this person leave? Well, often because there's that head game that they've become convinced they can't survive on their own. Um, But there's also, you know, when we're looking at men and women, women still earn less than men. So there's, there's that challenge. Many times there are children and the, and the, the dilemma that a person who has children with a narcissist will face um, is, is, are my children better off with me being in the home, um, even though the home is contentious and volatile and you know toxic, or are they better with me being out of the home and they can be with me half the time and have a stable household to go to and have a loving relationship where we can kind of detox from what goes on with the narcissist, but half the time they're gonna be with a narcissist and unprotected by me. Very true. So this is the dilemma that both women and men face. I have worked with a a good number of men who Mm -hmm. are with uh, women who are toxic and abusive. And for men, when they exit, I mean, part of what keeps them is the children, but also the men I've worked with often have left precisely because of this. And they, they can lean into, often they can lean into their higher earning powers. They have confidence that if I leave the marriage, Mm -hmm. I'll still be okay. But often the motivation for them leaving is I've, I've got this child. And ironically for, it's been many men, men, many of the men I've worked with have happened to be um, fathers of daughters. And um, they're really concerned about, um, their daughter growing up to be in an abusive relationship if they can't provide her with a model of healthy relationships while while she's growing up. So so often people stay because they have this dilemma. Is my kid safer with me in the house? Or is my kid going to be better off if they can part-time have a stable household uh, to go to. And there's, I don't, I don't know that there's a, a correct answer there. It's a, it's a dilemma that parents, so this is one of the reasons why, why people stay. Some people take the strategy of, um, you know, recognizing that they're not going to leave, but they don't have the quality of life that they want. So they figure out how to get emotional connection elsewhere, whether that's through friends or whether it's through church or whether it's through with your children or whether it's through, you know, so like, what am I missing that I don't have in my partnership and how can I get that without, without leaving because I don't want to leave for various reasons. Other people recognize, gosh, I love the heck out of this person, but they're not good for me. Right. So we can love or think we love a lot of stuff that is not good for us. Like sugar. You can love sugar. They are just like sugar for at least three months. <laughs> yeah, you can love sugar, but it's not good for you. And so some people just make this choice like, 
I have to override because remember what we were saying about intermittent reinforcement. It's addictive. So these relationships do sometimes have an addictive quality to them. Like, I know I should quit you, but I just can't. Well, that's addiction. That's not love. Love is not control. Love is not being controlled. Love is supporting the person being the best version of themselves. Love is saying, if you need to leave me because that's your best life, then I'm going to support you in doing that, even though I wish that were not what you needed to do. That's what love acts like. And so I think we have some very um, immature and uh, sort of uh, gaslighty, for want of a better word, um, notions of, 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 what, of what love is. And so, you know, in our culture, in this language even, love can be, I love sugar, I love uh, a person, I love a good day, I love... So we don't have a lot of specificity. So I try to help my clients think about other things like um, respect, like dignity, like feeling cherished. What are the feeling appreciated, appreciating? What are the, what are the components of love really? And also sometimes we have to recognize Mm, my thinking that I'm helping this person, my thinking that I'm holding them up, my thinking that I'm improving their life is actually disabling for them because I continue to enable them to behave in these ways that are bad for me, bad for other people, bad for the children uh, that I don't uh, see as having integrity. So the more I stay, I'm endorsing these kinds of behaviors. And that's not love either. And so sometimes we have to recognize that we've played a role in contributing to this person continuing to do the damage that they are doing, right? So we can feel that we love somebody, but also be called to do the thing that is the best for them and for us. Allowing them to abuse us is not actually good for them. If you think there's karma, <laughs> yes letting letting them abuse you is bad for their karma yes yes so having boundaries setting limits those are loving acts and we've women in particular have been trained to like like it's that horrible children's story the giving tree Ugh. you know mm -hmm. each your apples chop you up for firewood sit on you as a chair and this is what love is that's not <laughs> somebody somebody recently rewrote that story okay so that it was more appropriate to recognize mm -hmm. like you know, love is not just destroying yourself mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. i think loving somebody who is personality disordered can look a lot of different ways but ultimately if you're going to have the person in your life and that i think that's often more of the question, what does that look like? How can you manage it? So particularly if it's a sibling, um, a parent, uh, an adult child, um, there's just a lot of work that has to be done around boundaries and mm -hmm. setting your expectations appropriately, protecting your stuff, 
so that it's not stolen or exploited from you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having boundaries, I'll give you this much, but not that much. You can stay this long, but not that long. Gosh, you're yelling at me. I'm not going to, you know, we have to end the conversation now. You can call back when you're calmer. Mm-hmm. Constant, constantly working on your own standards and boundaries. I will tell you one more thing I love about your your book. Uh, I love that you put in there that laughing matters. And I love that you made a distinction between just laughter and then lighthearted laughter. Because I think a lot of people forget that there's a difference and that when you're truly laughing, uh, it's such a different experience than when you're pretending that you're laughing or, mm-hmm. uh, and I think with, with relationships that, that are toxic, it's so difficult to be yourself and to express yourself fully that you probably never experience those moments of just lighthearted laugh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is why it's so important to not be always in the box. Mm-hmm. And so if you've got friends, so often in toxic relationships, people get isolated. And I think one of the keys of that I learned from my mother being in a, in a difficult, very difficult relationship for a very long time was she always had a life outside. She always mm-hmm. had her, she always had girlfriends. She always had her after five club that she would go to. She always had church stuff. She always and so she had a, a, she did not allow herself to be isolated, which my father would have loved. Um, but she, she drew those lines. No, that's not, that's not what I'm doing. You know, mm-hmm. I'm married to you, but I have, I have a life outside. My mother was very light, lighthearted, despite um, having a difficult marriage and, or a marriage to somebody who's difficult. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's another thing. But having those places where, um, you can be lighthearted where, um, it isn't about, um, the, the only thing we're talking about is how difficult the marriage is or how difficult the partnership is, because those places remind you, you are who you are, where you can go out into the world and people see you as a whole person and they see you as smart and they see you as funny and you get reflected back to yourself by people who don't have an interest in tearing you down or wearing you down. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's one of the keys is like to have a life <clears throat> outside where you can be reminded about who you are. And at some point I, I was, um, I, I was in a, in a very toxic relationship at one point and I went to the wedding of friends and they had a wonderful, like three day celebration out on a farm. And um, I was there and I was just hanging out and there was a drumming circle next to a, 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 you know, a fire. And we were sitting there having, you know, having drinks under the stars and looking up. And I was like, this is a great moment. And I couldn't have this moment if the person, the toxic person I was dating were here. And that was the point at which I realized the, that it was all about my decision. It was all just all about me deciding. I can be in something toxic or I can be out of it. I could be having every life of my night, my, every, every night of my life being something that is pleasant and fun and 
uplifting and like we can we can choose it's about choosing and so for me in my in my personal journey through these kinds of relationships that was really just like oh i'm here people are treating me as though i'm a member of the community the community is lovely why do i have this other relationship in my life where i might go out to dinner and be yelled at in a in a restaurant I mean, that's crazy why am i doing that so i stopped you know so some of it sometimes but um, you know fortunately i was that relationship was such that there wasn't property there wasn't children there wasn't you know there wasn't some of these other complicated issues but sometimes when we're outside and have these other experiences we remember who we are and we remember how good life can be and that as stuck as we feel that feeling of stuckness can is also part of the abuse mm -hmm. So getting out can take a lot of time and money, but that decision, I'm going to get out of this, that can, that can take place in a split second. It's worth it. It is worth mm -hmm. it. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Mm -hmm. So maybe just for one minute, tell us a little bit about what, what do you think, what is your hope? You wrote this amazing book, uh, very straightforward, very logical, very well organized, uh, down to earth, uh, the exact guide of how to get out of that narcissistic relationship. So what do you what's your hopes with this? Oh, goodness. Well, my hope is that anybody who is suffering in this kind of relationship, um, my, honestly, my hope is that people get out. Uh, I know that not everybody can. But if, if, if you'll, and, uh, and this may not be the high note that we're looking for at the end of, <laughs> at the end of an interview, <laughs> but, but maybe a warning, right? <laughs> when people are in a toxic relationship, they often underestimate how bad it is. And the, the end game might be, imagine yourself, imagine yourself having a stroke, for example, and being utterly disabled and having that toxic person be the person who is your medical decider and who manages your life when you can no longer manage it. And, and it's a dangerous game to play the, some people play this game of who dies first. <clears throat> but what if one of you doesn't die and one of you is disabled? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like we have to imagine these scenarios right? Because those are horrifying because people can say, oh, I can put up with it. I can tolerate it. It, you know, it'll get better. It'll get better when the kids are gone, this kind of thing. But, but there may come a day when you cannot get out. And so my hope is that if people are suffering in this kind of relationship, yes, they do find these books and they contemplate getting out. And if they decide to get out, they plan to get out and they do that with uh, smarts and care. Um, and partly you have to, Partly they assemble a good team, whether that's therapist, attorney, friends, like you make a, you make a plan so you can anticipate the worst stuff that could happen and you, and you prepare for it and you build a bulwark against it. Um, my hope is that people, you know, steer clear of these relationships, get out quickly if they can, but if they've been in a long time, they're just coming to consciousness about it, that they get the support they need to get out. Because if they don't get out, what happens at the end could be really, really terrible. So there's that.
And I hope as a community, as a culture, we come to consciousness about this. I, I believe, and you know, folks may disagree. I, I said this to somebody else who interviewed me and he was quite taken aback. I think this country, the United States, and maybe even the whole world, has over the course of the last few years been in a narcissistic relationship with our government. And the price we have paid, both in terms of like our grip on reality and uh, how COVID was handled and the lives we lost through COVID because somebody who had a cluster B personality and all the people around him who did not want to poke the bear or say the emperor has no clothes, reinforce that dynamic. And so I think culturally we are right now quite traumatized. And I, I hope we start to see that this dynamic is not just in individual relationships, but there's a broader social dynamic. And some of us have come to consciousness about what the heck has, has happened here and we're trying to recover from it. But I think everybody has sustained some, almost everybody has sustained some damage. And, and that's what it looks like on a, on, a, on a national or maybe even global scale. Thank you so much. You have been wonderful. And I think that Anybody who reads this book, like you said, maybe even if people want to relate it to bigger social issues, I think this is a wonderful read. And I really appreciate all your work you put into it and all the openness to feedback and making it for people like me, people who are uh, maybe don't appreciate as much of the research, you know, quotes in there, but just getting down to earth to the point. So I really thank you so much for this. Thank you. It's so, so kind of you to have me on and thank you for the positive reception to the book and um, best of luck with the podcast. Thank you. So Amy's asking if it's possible to be happy in a toxic relationship. Wow. Sophie, where do you get these listeners? And where do you get all these questions? <laughs> this is, this is an excellent question. Okay, but it's a tough one. Right. Because, because somehow in the question, we're assuming that it's possible to stay in a relationship that's toxic and be happy. Maybe she's wondering, um, is it possible to change that person, which is such a, you know... Complex. Right. Complex issue. I mean, my immediate reaction mm -hmm. is no, mm -hmm. especially if they have a, mm -hmm. I guess have been diagnosed with something specific you mm -hmm. can't really i mean there would be a lot of work but i don't know mm -hmm. if it's i guess it's what you want to do for like if you want to have spend most of your time trying to fix someone or mm -hmm. if you want to have a life and then a loving partner who supports you while you live your life but. and and depends what makes you happy because you know like as you were you were talking you're, you're saying uh it depends if you want to focus on fixing someone because maybe Maybe you're drawn to people that need fixing and you meet this wonderful narcissistic person and, and you think you're going to be able to help them. You can see their struggle. You can maybe maybe you come from a home where one of the parents was a narcissist mm -hmm. and maybe uh, you have a heart for narcissists and, and you think that you can you can help them get fixed and then you'll be happy with them once they are fixed. So. Uh, so is it possible to stay in a relationship that is toxic and be happy? 
I think it's possible to stay in a relationship that is toxic, and a lot of people do. Right. And a lot of people adjust their behaviors and their expectations, and they and they continue staying. Maybe. Do you think that still traumatizes them, even though they've kind of accepted it in one way or the other? Is it still? I guess it if they're doing traumatizing things. I think it goes back to the question we got yesterday. Uh, what happens when you become numb in a relationship, right? Right. So sometimes when you are in a relationship and the person might be narcissistic or have other personality disorder traits, you will try to change yourself in different ways to please your partner. And then eventually you get burned out and maybe numb. Well, so the question is, is it possible to be happy in a toxic relationship? And I, and I think you touched on it a little bit. It's, it depends. You could potentially enjoy some parts of a toxic relationship because most of the time a person that is toxic also has qualities that, that draw people to them. Right. Right. So there are parts of the relationship that that you might enjoy and maybe the first three or four months of the relationship will be wonderful and you'll be happy during those three or four months and then eventually the person will start showing more of their true colors. The mask comes off. The mask comes off because they feel comfortable with you. Perhaps they feel you're (laughs) now attached to the point of no return and they feel safe that you won't leave so they are starting to show more of their true colors and then... Can you stay happy at that point? Right. And that also depends because uh, it depends. <laughs> I think people change their expectation mm. and they, they start to... One, and so, so this, is, this is kind of hard to, to answer. Yeah. The reason why is because it's also related to what Amber said. Mm -hmm. in the interview, and so I would want to kind of draw back on what she said. So Amber Alt, in her book, The Five-Step Exit, and in her interview that we just had with her, uh, Mm -hmm. she mentions a very important key component of uh, relationships with narcissists, and uh, or maybe lack of, Mm -hmm. and that would be emotional connection. Mm. So... So when you ask a question, can you be happy in a toxic relationship? Ask yourself, can you be happy without an emotional connection to your partner? Wow. And when you ask yourself that question, and and if you can live without an emotional connection to your partner, then perhaps you can still be happy. Hmm. But if you need an emotional connection, you need to have conversations, you need to feel like they care about you. You need to feel like they are thoughtful. If you, well, if you crave most of the normal parts of the relationships, <laughs> right? then you probably will not be happy. Mm. Mm-hmm. Of course, we don't want to encourage anyone to stay in a toxic relationship, but... But some people have no choice. So, for right. example, you know, I, I used to date someone that was a narcissist. I did not know that at the beginning, oh, okay? Mm-hmm. And I had a choice to leave. But I also have my father, who I love dearly. He's a narcissist. There's no way around it. He's just a narcissist. I love him. I think he's spectacular. I think he is uh, charismatic in some different ways. I think he is uh, wise in some different ways. I I love my father. I kind of have him on a pedestal. I also love my mom. And I have her on a pedestal too. And and yet I, I see their relationship for what it is. 
And I see how my mom does not have an emotional connection to my father, how she craves that. And I think that growing up, I was the person that she talked to and she connected to. So she found ways to fulfill her need to emotionally connect mm -hmm. by talking to her children, which some therapists would say was unhealthy because that crossed certain boundaries. Right. And she may have opened up about some things that she probably shouldn't have, depending on my age, right? right. But, but I can see that a person that is narcissistic can also have a family that loves them dearly. And I can, I can see the struggles of a person that's a narcissist because that person is completely unaware of the impact they have on the people around them. They don't know. And if they're told, they just they still can't comprehend they it. They cannot comprehend it. So, wow. so it's almost like if you want a narcissistic person to change, you can you can change some of the behaviors that they might do. You might be able to train them on, please don't talk to me that way or that way. Okay, you might be able to change some small parts of what they will do, but you can't change their essence. Okay, their and feelings. You, their feelings. Mm -hmm. You can't change that the primary person they care about is themselves. They might be great providers. They might pay for things. They might, they might seem like they care. But when you, when you truly just look to the, to the bottom of the issue, mm -hmm. you will notice that everything they do somehow goes back to feeding their own ego. Mm. So they might be a great provider because they want to show everyone what a great provider provider they are. Ah, so at the end of the day, it's not because they care about you and they love you and they provide. It's because they want to feel like they are a provider because it gives them an ego. Yes, because they feed their own sense of ego and control and power over wow. you. So It's like an image thing. <clears throat> it's very much so. So this disorder is probably the hardest disorder to treat in therapy because most people that are narcissistic will never come to a therapist's office. They have no insight. That's what we call it in therapy. They have no insight. That means they, have, they, they can't look within themselves and say, oh, wait a minute, I have difficulty emotionally bonding with people because... Hmm, because I don't really care about anybody else other than how I feel myself. There's actually a YouTube channel. Um, I'll probably put in the episode notes mm -hmm. where this uh, this person uh, interviewed someone with who identified as a sociopath mm -hmm. and and was diagnosed with. I'm not sure exa exactly mm -hmm. what the diagnosis was, but um, he was talking about how he just doesn't get it. Yes, and he. And basically, he stays home yes. because he can't fight his urges. But the, he has some level of self-reflection where he's like, I know that I don't know. Mm -hmm. And he can't Something understand. Yeah. And, and when, you, when you hear Amber talk, she mm -hmm. talks about it too. Like, the person knows that something is missing. So they, they may seek out a partner that maybe embodies some of the qualities that they want, right? So maybe they will find someone that is... Um, very emotionally connected to others. Maybe somebody that is warm, somebody that, um, you know, wants to please others, right? Because then they will continue feeling good about themselves because that other person will be there to serve them mm. as, uh, as a, you know, treat them source. like God, as a source, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I know Amber talked about addiction and mm -hmm. how it can be addictive. Yes. So when you, when you think about relationships um, and drugs, <laughs> okay, 
relationships, sex, all of those things, feeling good that increases the good and good um well, good, good, good. It increases the good in you. Mm-hmm. Okay, the endorphins, the neurotransmitters, the dopamine, okay? When you feel good, you have a tendency to want to continue doing that behavior. Right. And the same way, if you feel pain, you may want to avoid it and you may not want to engage in that behavior again. So so when you are in a relationship and all the endorphins are working for you and dopamine is high and you feel great, you tend to want to stay in the relationship. Right? right. It's the same thing with addiction. When you take a drug and it increases your dopamine, makes you feel good, you tend to get addicted to it for some individuals faster, you know, for some individuals. <laughs> for some individuals, it takes longer to get addicted. For some mm-hmm. individuals, it takes less time to get addicted. And it's the same with with relationships. So some people, and you will you will see those patterns, some people are addicted to new relationships. Why? Because there's when, that high in that beginning. There's that and high it always in the beginning. wears off and becomes something else. Always be, becomes something else. Mm-hmm. Why? Because, well, it's not possible for our bodies to sustain a high all the time. It's just not possible. We will burn ourselves out, we'll burn our brain out if we were continuously producing high levels of dopamine. So our relationships or can relationships be an addiction uh definitely yes yeah in a in a slightly a different way than maybe a drug but actually some people would say that drugs are safer to be addicted to because as long mm. as you have money you can go and purchase your drug but when you're addicted to a person guess what they might decide to leave and then Your SOL. (laughs) Wait, what's that? SOL? Shit out of luck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, so sometimes it is, it it is complex. So, so let's say you you're dating a narcissist, and um, Amber talked about intermittent reinforcement. So, she talked about the power of basically people uh, training us to to act certain ways, right? So, and she, she used the metaphor of a puppy dog waiting for some scraps from the table and sometimes getting it and sometimes not. But as long as they get it at least once or twice, now they're trained, keep looking for they it. keep looking for it, right? That brings up uh, another topic. Uh, well, not another topic, but something related. So, you know, after you go no contact or whatever, mm-hmm. assuming that's the route you choose, I don't, with a narcissist? In, in my personal experience, mm-hmm. that I think that's the only way. Yes. But um, they always try to come back. Of course. Like, there's been, like, four instances with yes. me going through friends, and then I yes. found I had to literally block everyone yes. that had any kind of relation to this person. Yes. yes. Which sucks, but, you yes. know. So, so that's why she talks about the five-step exit strategy. And she talks about planning because you have to be very careful how you exit that relationship because when you're dealing with a narcissist or a psychopath or one of those cluster B traits, we call that Mm -hmm. in DSM-5, when you're dealing with a person that has a personality disorder, they may not be aware of what they're doing. They may know that it's illegal, but they may not be aware that they are making you feel terrible. Um, may or may not. It depends on a person. But they will keep doing it because yeah. they want to pull you back in into the relationship because they want to continue exercising their power over you. Right. 
Yeah, I, I, I definitely warned the people close to me that I cared what they thought. Um, the other people I might not ever see again. So, you know, just like distant friends on Instagram or something like hopefully I won't have to see them, you know, and I don't have to explain myself and hopefully they don't care either. Well, you know? and, and sometimes, you know, sometimes you don't know you're dating a narcissist or with a narcissist. Uh, you just you just feel a sense of being tired, a sense of not feeling like yourself anymore, kind of apathetic, you know, not feeling joy anymore, not smiling, just kind of walking on eggshells. Uh, and when you feel that way, uh, you may still not know that you're with a narcissist. And only when you try to leave, you realize that the strategies they use to either pull you in or if they decide that that's not possible, they will try to destroy you. Mm. And so they will try to destroy you in all kinds of ways. It's just, it's, it's very sad. For me personally, it's sad to see, especially in family situations, um, when two parents that brought children to this world, um, one of them might be a narcissist, and for some reason they, they lack that perspective to see that they are not just damaging their partner, they are damaging their children as well. So right. you, you, but, but see, here's the insanity of this disorder. When you're a normal person looking at it, you expect that someone will see the damages they're causing, emotional, financial, um, all kinds of, you know, all kinds of damages they're causing, and that they would look at it and stop at one point and say, Oh my gosh, what am I doing? Yeah. I'm doing something wrong. I'm doing something terrible. But they can never stop and see that. They will keep going until they destroy you. And, and they, they seem to have that sense of almost satisfaction when, when they destroy you. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's probably a little more narcissism mixed in with sociopath right. uh, qualities. So would you be safer if after... You've done what you need to do. You know, you've told your friends the people closest to you are aware and you're safe and they move on. Is that like, is that the time where you would take a deep breath out and be like, okay, they've moved on. They have a new source of whatever they need. Um, as horrible as that sounds. I think when you're talking about narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, psychopath, uh, personality disorder, you need to think of it in terms of spectrums. So you know how maybe you do, maybe you don't. There's something called autism spectrum disorder, yeah. right? So when you think of autism, not everyone is impacted in the same level. Right. And I think of all disorders in that way. And sometimes in psychiatry we'll have, we'll have levels. We'll say mild, moderate, or severe. But as you can only imagine... Not everybody's going to be exactly mild. What's your between mild and moderate? And right. what's your between moderate and severe? Yeah. And, you know, so, so I prefer to think of everything sort of as this spectrum. So when you're analyzing your personal situation, you should think about the partner that you're trying to figure out. Where are they on that spectrum? Because there could be absolutely wonderful narcissistic partners that are sweet and nice and and as long as you're engaging with them in this chase uh, sort of a game, then perhaps perhaps they can still be charming and nice to you. So and and let me put that in in actual 
situations, okay? okay. So when I was dating my uh, narcissistic uh, boyfriend, uh, I think of him as very charming, very uh, hmm, wonderful, gregarious, loud personality that I think he means well. I don't think he realizes that that he is, you know, narcissistic. He was a really awesome, nice person. So when I think of levels or spectrum of the disorder, I don't think of him as severe. I think of him as mildly narcissistic. And then you, you could ask yourself, does that even make sense? Uh, because, of course, in our Bible of disorders, we don't have mild narcissism and moderate narcissism and severe narcissism. But I think that there are levels of it only because some people, even though they have no insight, they are open to feedback at least. So mm -hmm. with my narcissistic boyfriend, he was uh, he was open to feedback. And when I would give him feedback, he would try at least for a while to change the behavior or try to take the feedback seriously. Sometimes he would even say he discussed it with his therapist. So I think that he is one of those kinds of narcissists that are at least partially open to working on themselves and they realize there might be something missing and they want to get the help and they want to change. So um, that's a long way of answering your question about uh, can you, um, is there a safe way to leave a narcissist? I think that was the question, right? right. So, so I think it's a long way of answering it because you have to you have to analyze your situation on a personal level and you have to analyze that narcissist on a sort of a spectrum. So how dangerous can this person right. be? Is this person dangerous? Have yep. they you know have they ever followed you and uh, tried to stalk you and tried to you know so what are so give me some examples of what your ex was doing. So the relationship's been ended for however many years, whatever, uh, a friend reaches out and says, won't tell me what they want to talk about. Um, just say, hey, can you call? And it seems urgent. I'm like, is everything okay? Are you safe? What's going on? Because I haven't heard from this person in a long time. And when I pick up, she says that that ex wants to apologize. And, I'm, and I was like, oh, okay, well, how are you? And just completely ignored it and didn't give it any, you know. And this is... And there have been multiple incident, incidences where they have tried to reach out through people or um, just done weird things so, trying to get in contact. So if you think about spectrum right. of the narcissistic behaviors, it seems like that person is definitely using a lot of manipulation, Yeah. right? Manipulating your friends, the people that you know, that person might be spinning the story in different ways to um, make your friends see a different version of that person. And they might be basically trying to get back with you through manipulation. I hope not. <laughs> I hope they don't want to get back together. Mm -hmm. I'm, I, that's why I asked the question earlier if it would be safer for them to have moved on. Like knowing that they're in a whole new relationship, they're focused on manipulating that person. I'm so sorry for that person. But, you know, then I'm like, Ooh, I don't have to worry about them maybe trying to crawl back until maybe that ends or something. You, you are correct. I think that you are safer when they have another victim, so to speak, because they are busy focusing on someone else now. But you're never truly safe in the sense of 
that relationship is going to fall apart again. And they might go back to trying to persuade you to come back with them. So it's, it's, but it also depends on a person. So there are cases where somebody completely moves on and, and uh, they leave you alone, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And there are cases where these folks are not moving on and they will every once in a while reach out and bother you. Yeah. So. It seems every year there's one thing. Yes. yes. Just some little weird something mm-hmm. even when you have them blocked email Everywhere. instagram twitter yes. phone changed your number move states it still happens yes. somehow yes because that's Weird. why they're they're toxic and and they will try to find a way to bother you because that gives yeah. them a sense of control how dare you abandoning me how dare you leaving me i am the one that has power you shouldn't be the one deciding what you're gonna do i should be able to tell you what to do right because that's what narcissism is. That person believes that they are and that they should make all the decisions and that you you belong to them. Right. You are they own you, right? And when we have autonomy, it it completely breaks that illusion they have of that's correct. of control. So it's like, what do you mean you're happy without me and you can just move on and That's correct. And then it's like, oh, maybe I don't maybe I'm not the God, maybe I'm not a god and I have control over thing. Maybe you're just human and an asshole. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so not only not only there's levels of narcissism. I I think of it as levels, but there's also levels of your own depth in your own personality, and and levels of autonomy that you are able to establish for yourself within the that relationship. So, mm. when Amber talked about her parents, uh, she mentioned her mother was very autonomous in terms of, you know, after five o'clock, she had her uh, group of women that she went and hung out with where she could be herself, right? Right. So that allowed her to remember who she truly was because Mm. one of the aspects of narcissistic relationships is that you end up forgetting who you are, unfortunately, because you are subjected every day to this emotional manipulation and you are at the end of a few years of of that relationship you are so confused about who you are that you no longer know who you are so so it all depends how you're going to protect yourself so if you want to stay in that relationship because you love the person you believe you can help them then you have to figure out what kind of safeguards are you going to use so that you can still remember who you are at the end of the day. I feel really lucky that in the that relationship I was talking about, um, there was a distance made between us physically. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really helpful because I was constantly doing different classes and I would see friends and I I actually feel like I actually learned more about myself in the alone time and it gave me a chance to plan and I I feel like I was detaching long before it was really over. Mm -hmm. So it was just a long process. Well, and and again, you know, because at some point you probably noticed that you're not emotionally connected to your ex Mm -hmm. because it's not possible because... They can't really care about what you feel and, or how you feel or yeah. or what your hobbies are or what your day was like. They can ask you. See, they can go through the motions of asking. And that's what I was able to train my narcissistic ex with. I was able to train him to ask me those questions. Well, how is your day? Well, how is your day? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was able to uh, train him in, in some ways of behavior that 
that would be more normal, and he was able to emulate. So these, so folks with narcissistic personality disorder are very good about mimicking their environment and mimicking some of the normal behaviors. They just don't have empathy. I guess that's the, the best way of saying it. They don't really have empathy. They don't really, they can't feel the pain that you feel. They can't relate to it. And when you can't feel somebody else's pain, well, then you don't care. Then you just don't care, right? Because you just can't feel it. So what do they feel? Well, that's a good question. If I knew that, then I would be a narcissist probably. Um, I think that they are preoccupied with thoughts about themselves. And that's what they do all day. They're preoccupied with how they present themselves to others, what others might be thinking. Because a lot of narcissists almost lead a double life. On the outside, they present themselves in a certain light. You know, maybe as a a person that's very social and and funny and and then at home they will be a different person. So hmm. they might be cranky and and grouchy and frustrated and and uh, impulsive or angry or frustrated. Not very nice to be around. So hmm. I would always so when I was dating my uh, my ex, I was always very confused about it because and of course, you know, I'm a counselor. I didn't know that I could fall for a narcissist. Right. I thought that no oh, one's safe. <laughs> no one's safe. You know, and that's the bottom line. But, you know, I was kind of confused because when we were outside doing something together among other people, he would sort of talk about me and brag about me and he would kind of put me on a pedestal, which actually made me feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And then, and he would be really nice and very thoughtful and he would open doors for me and and be a gentleman and... But then when behind closed doors, when we would be by ourselves, it was like suddenly he had no patience and he was kind of snappy and frustrated and easily irritated. And he would criticize me for different things. And, you know, I, uh, for example, I don't really do any home chores because I don't have time for that. So, so I don't iron, I don't wash anything. I'm just, I just don't have time for that. Okay. My parents live with me. So they do a lot of those chores, and I go to work because that's what I do. Um, and when I was dating him, he would try to say, well, you need to do more house chores because you don't do anything. And that's okay. Well, that's fine. Yeah. But I'm not in my home. I'm in your home. I'm not going to do your chores. I'm sorry. We're dating. But, yeah. you know, once in a while, of course, you want to please the other person. So once in a while, I would do something that would be household-like and, uh, you know, some type of a chore. So he left his iron out and a few shirts. And then, you know, and I'm standing there watching TV. So I thought, well, I will just plug the iron in and iron the shirt. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he comes in and he's he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, ironing your shirt. And he goes, oh, no, don't do it. You don't even know how to do it. And Oh, gosh. And, you know, and I was yeah. like, my mistake, my bad. I'll never do that again. Ugh. You know, sorry for trying to be nice. Yeah, I had that too, just the constant mm-hmm. house comments. And it's, yes. Like, you don't even have your own a, your own place. You don't know what it's like to clean an entire place from top to bottom. Like, oh. So, <laughs> so what you notice, though, you know, no matter how the behavior comes across, it's the nitpicking yes. at you and how you do something. It's like that person made me feel like there was some magical secret way of doing 
house chores. Like there was some secret that mm-hmm. he had and I didn't. And no matter what I did, You'll never it was be always right. wrong, right? Mm-hmm. It's always wrong. No matter what They'll you do. They'll find something. They will find something. Yeah. So so after after being around that kind of a person for a, for a while, you know, it, it just, you know, so I sort of was very confused all the time. I, you know, at first I fell in love and I, I felt, you know, like, oh my gosh, you know, this guy's awesome and, you know, I'm single and I found this awesome gem amongst, uh, you know, this diamonds, right. you know, and, and then about three months into it, I started feeling confusion and mm-hmm. I, I'm a very blunt and straightforward person. So I am always the same around most everybody, I, I would say, mm-hmm. you know, if you're homeless, I'm the same if, as if you would be the president. I, I don't really care what you do or I just care that you respect Right. And that you behave. But, you know, with him, it was like one image on the outside and then another behavior on the inside. And so you never know what you're going to get. What What am I going to get with you today? You almost have to wait before you get serious and give them a chance to Definitely. F up so you can see, okay, is this a normal screw up or Definitely. is this on another level of right. messed up? <laughs> yes. And, you know, and it's hard to figure out because... All relationships are going to have some type of challenges. They will all have their yeah. own ups and downs. So how do you immediately know that that person is a narcissist? You don't. You and don't. so you're learning. And every narcissist is different than the next one, right? right. So there's so many unique types of personalities. And Ugh. and again, mm-hmm. there's levels. So this narcissist could be a really nice one, charming one. And this one could be... Uh, an asshole one that you can pick up immediately, but mm-hmm. but then there's levels in between too. Oh, you know, right. yeah, this could be different shades of gray. Multiple episodes. Of <laughs> about this. All right. So, but I I think mm-hmm. that though, if you really want to know if you're dating a narcissist or not, um, I think you have to ask yourself: Do you feel emotionally connected to them? You know, and that would sort of give you a clue. Now. You could be a narcissist listening to it too. So you, if you have challenges with connecting emotionally to others, you could be the one that has the issue. Like, of course, you could have gone through a trauma that could change Exactly. It. So people that have personality disorders usually come from very troubled environments. Or there's another aspect to it. Mm-hmm. They might come from a very wealthy family, a uh, family that maybe met all of their physical and material needs, but one or the other parent was narcissistic and did not connect emotionally with their child. Does that guarantee a narcissistic child? If you have narcissistic uh, personality disorder, you are definitely more likely to have children that have narcissistic personality disorder because everything is genetic. You know, half of it is environment, half of it is genetics. So by default, you know, if one of the parents is narcissistic, there's a high chance that one of the kids will have it. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> if we're speaking about that, and that, that could be multiple episodes. Yeah. Um, if you are raised in a home where one parent was narcissistic, you may tend to be attracted to partners that are narcissistic. Yeah. I think that was the cycle I had to to break Mm -hmm. a bit. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because our mind 
Our minds are wonderful. We learned that was love. Like love We learned was, that it was mm-hmm. love. And our minds continue trying to work out the issues that we were first faced with when we were growing up. So when we see a relationship between our parents and one of them is narcissistic and one of them might be a very giving person, because mm-hmm. that's usually what happens, right. then we le- not only learn that that's normal, that one person takes and one person gives, right. but we also struggle to understand the relationship and we want to understand it. So we end up picking partners eventually that will enable us to sort of live through the same cycles again so we can figure it out. Right. And hopefully Mm -hmm. we get out of that cycle. Hopefully. And not get stuck in it. That's why talking about it and doing therapy and thinking about it and writing about it, that's why all of that will help give you some more perspective and insight. That's why whenever someone tells me, oh, um, or what is it? Yeah, if someone has told me, I've had people tell me before, oh, my partner doesn't want me talking to anyone about what goes on. And it's like, oh, that's terrible because you'll never have perspective. And I had a partner that, um, I think it was episode three, we talked about it. Um, I had a partner that didn't want me telling anyone anything that went on, especially if it was a fight. And now that's a huge boundary. If someone tells me I can't speak to anyone else about anything, it's a huge red flag for me. Um, And if I explain to them why that's wrong and they totally get it, maybe that'll be a little different. But if they're like hardcore, don't speak to anyone, don't bring it up in therapy, oh, like I don't think we can even be friends. So Well, because it's a very controlling behavior. Mm-hmm. So what a narcissist wants to do is ultimately they want to take full control over you. Yeah. They want to possess you. So it's not love, it's possession. Mm-hmm. When you possess something... You're an object. You're an object. And yeah. so, so the narcissist doesn't want you disclosing any information to anyone else that he or she did not approve first. Because they don't want to be perceived in a different light. They don't want to be perceived as a narcissist. They don't want anybody telling you that they are a narcissist. Because other people could know. If you don't know, great. They want to keep it that way. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's heavy. It's you have heavy. to talk, like, to listeners, if you're listening, you have to talk to someone. Yes. It's, and oh, it's such a red flag if they say you can't. It is, but nobody is immune to this. And, and like yeah. I said before, you know, I'm a counselor, so I hold myself to a higher standard, and somehow I expect myself to just be able to see through people and be able to pick up on some of those yeah. qualities. And you can't. You, you, you literally can't. These guys... And women. I, I don't want to make it sound like it's just one-sided right. and only one gender. Any gender. <laughs> Any gender, really. I've, I've known uh, people that are women that are narcissists and men that are narcissists. Mm-hmm. It, it's not gender-biased. Mm-hmm. There is a there is a bias in the number of diagnoses given, though. So usually women will be diagnosed more with borderline personality disorder, sometimes histrionic personality disorder, and then men will be more diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder or psychopathic. Pathic uh, mm-hmm. personality disorder. We need an episode to talk about. Oh, were those cluster Bs, right? Yeah, all of those we, are cluster yeah, Bs. We need an episode to talk about cluster B uh-huh. stuff. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes, it's really fascinating. But uh, I was chuckling over here when you said that um, that he didn't want you talking about different arguments that you guys had, because I remembered back when I was dating my uh, cute narcissist. Um, <laughs> he would get upset when I talked about 
different arguments or, or sort of try to analyze these scenarios. He would want to always forget it and move on. And I am not that kind of a person. I mean, I'm going to say it how it is. Yeah. If you're wrong, you're going to know that you're wrong, and I'm going to tell you about it. Yeah. And I'm probably going to mention it out in public somewhere when you don't expect it, and I'm going to make a joke out of it because right. that's what I do. To get through stress, I will just joke about things, mm. and that makes me feel better. So I probably would be the worst person to stay with a narcissist because they would always be mad at me, you know, because yeah. I would just not conform. I wonder if they – this is going to sound so messed up, but I wonder if – to them, it's like a challenge because it's like I convinced a counselor, right? I someone who went to school for all right. these years and I tricked them, and oh, that makes oh, me yeah. mad to well, think about. <laughs> uh huh. I, I think people like that definitely like a challenge yeah. because they are very smart frequently and they they know what to say to to make people do whatever they want people to do. Yeah. So when you when you don't play their game, I I'm sure that it's highly uh you know sought after to to try to find someone that would be you know that would mm. that they could convince you know a counselor or someone else that Ugh. right yeah it's a crazy world out there it's hard to think like that right yeah you know uh amber alt also mentioned in her book that people that fall for these narcissistic relationships frequently are just people that are very honest. Really nice. Really nice. And they just don't anticipate that somebody is out there trying to exploit them. You know what's crazy? I just, I just had a memory, but mm -hmm. uh, the partner I was talking about, I remember in the beginning, he would always say, oh, you're so pure. And there was this one quote, I still don't know what it means, but um, you're so pure, I'm going to turn you into a weapon. What the hell does that mean? I have no idea. <laughs> it's really weird. Mm -hmm. And like you're saying, you're so innocent and all this weird stuff, and you're so sweet and all this. And but it, I could tell even back then it was just kind of a weird like definition of this thing. Definitely, and, and and so he's implying that he's gonna turn you into something. So he's working on you, right? He's trying to I'm make you into something else. You're a project, and what it means is that when he's repeating it frequently enough, then he's conditioning your brain and your mind to accept anything that he says as that part of that project, the secret project to make you into something, right? Yeah. So so he's, he's basically kind of trying to prepare you for this process of him creating you in a different way. Ugh. I know. I know. Well, good thing um, I left and... It's a wonderful thing that you left. And he can fuck off. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, you know, and, and again, you know, it's if someone is out there listening that has a personality disorder or was diagnosed with it, you know, we make it sound like it's uh, fungus or parasite that we're trying to get rid of, right? Because that's what it felt like in many ways. But if it's the person that has that parasite, I think if they could just accept that there might be something missing, you know, we don't know exactly what is responsible for narcissism? Is it the genetics? Is it the environment? Is it something that happened? Is it the trauma? So it could be partially just genetic. And that person could simply be missing uh, mm -hmm. some type of something. Right. Um, just like a person with Down syndrome, we can't 
anticipate that their IQ is going to be the same level, you know, as somebody else's without Down, Down syndrome, right. right? It's just the difference is with Down syndrome, you can see fe facial features that differ from another person that does, does not have right. Down syndrome. But, you know, are they personally responsible that they have Down syndrome? Probably not. It's the same with narcissism. That right. person is not aware that they have it. If they are aware, they might be then able to work on those behaviors and realize how much hurt they create. Right. Mm -hmm. So then maybe for our Cluster B episode, of course, we can talk about mm -hmm. what, what that even means. And then also we can talk about treatments. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Definitely. Lots of yeah. good conversations. Yeah. <gasps> okay. <laughs>